This morning's reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verses 1 to 9. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verses 1 to 9. Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and to the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. May I add my welcome to those of you who are here. Great to have you here. Those watching at home as well, um, online, or those down at Dalton Street. Um, I know there's a packed full of, uh, of folks down there too, so thank you for, um, for being willing to head down there. It's uh, great that you're here, and um, yeah, thrilled to look at God's Word together. And it'd be great to open uh, 1 Corinthians chapter... Seven in a, a Bible, or maybe you've got a, a, an app or something like that um, nearby, and uh, that's where we're going to spend our time for the next uh, half an hour or so. Um, <clears throat> and as, as you're turning that up, I just need to you know, spell it out in, a, in no uncertain terms. Today we're talking about sex. Um, I can't mince my words. Um, it, it wasn't particularly my idea to talk about it, um, but as a church, we believe in what's called expository preaching, which means we want to open up passage after passage from the Bible and look at the next passage after the bit that we looked at last time. And before Christmas, we uh, began a series of studies uh, through 1 Corinthians. We got to the end of chapter 6 and uh, we're into chapter 7 today. And unashamedly, that is the theme of our passage and therefore it needs to be the theme of our sermon. Uh, Most specifically, what we do in bed matters to God. He's concerned about everything we do in our lives and what we do in bed matters to God. Now maybe you're here today, you think, what? Well, I didn't do anything about it, I just go to sleep or maybe read books. Um, okay, our love lives matters to God. Or put it another way, how we conduct ourselves sexually matters to God. Now before Christmas, we uh, were looking at 1 Corinthians, we were in a new section which ran from the middle of chapter 6 through to the end of chapter 7 and covers... Issues to do with God and sex and marriage and singleness and divorce and going out and a whole load of really, really important topics. And uh, I say they're important because our culture doesn't seem to stop talking about those kinds of themes and things. Uh, But don't you for a moment think that our culture kind of sits neutrally, idly on the side allowing us all to, to, to work out what we understand uh, truth to be. You know, our culture has a very, very clear agenda speaking in on those topics. 
And so it's absolutely right that uh, we allow God's timeless word to have the casting vote on how we're to think about matters of sexuality, marriage, divorce, singleness, and so forth. Um, Particularly given our culture turn its back on God many, many years ago. Now before we dive into the passage, I want to flag up uh, four books I found really helpful as I've been planning for today and uh, this series. In fact, the first one is called Closer, a realistic book about intimacy for Christian marriages by uh, Adrian and Celia Reynolds. Really good book, that one. Uh, Then there's a book more widely on marriage, What Did You Expect? Redeeming the Realities of Marriage. That would be good if you're going out or thinking about getting married, uh, engaged, perhaps in a serious relationship, um, as well as if you're married too. Uh, then there's a one called Seven Myths About Singleness by Sam Albury, who's spoken here before. And then the last one is so good, I've lost it, um, but it's very good. It's called Purposeful Sexuality by Ed Shaw, who spoke uh, here just before Christmas. And uh, they're all excellent and well worth reading through, particularly that last one, which talks about you know, why has God made us sexual beings if many of us uh, never kind of enact our sexual desires in the context of marriage? Um, and uh, why, why and what is that all about? And it's a really, really good book on it. Because let's be totally honest, uh, sex is a very personal, private issue. And it connects with our past. It connects with our passions, it connects with our identity, it connects with issues of failure, it connects with issues of shame. Let's be honest, it connects with issues of abuse. And maybe we're on the receiving end of that, very possibly on the receiving end of that, possibly on the, the giving end of that too. Uh, maybe it connects with issues in the kind of present day, maybe it connects with issues many, many, many years ago. It might even connect with issues still to come in the future. And so it's right that we uh, bring these issues and questions to God's word and hear what he has to say to us, as he will do over the next uh, few weeks. And what we're going to look at, we're just going to dive into verse 1, have a look at uh, the passage, and uh, let's see what it says. And now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And uh, the moment we read that, we think, well, here we go. The Bible is reinforcing the opinion that we had of it when we or when our culture thought about it. Which is, God is basically anti-sex, he's anti-relationship, he's anti-marriage, he's anti-having fun. And that's what a lot of our culture thinks is going on on a Sunday at church. They don't think we're thinking about sex for half an hour. So, um, but many people in the past have thought Christians think that way. You want to be really, really spiritual, um, then it's the monastery or the nunnery for you. That's where you need to belong. You want to be really, really godly, then you need to make a vow of chastity or celibacy. And that is going to be your calling for the rest of your life. Renounce any and all hopes for marriage or for children, or for family, or um, any sexual urges that you may have, godly intimacy, now that's all in the bin, and uh, you need really to follow the example of the early church father Origen, who was so convinced uh, for his need to be a lifelong celibate, that he castrated himself. Now, let's not get carried away, because uh, that is not biblical, and uh, God's word is not nearly so priggish or so Victorian as that. And we need to get our, our history right, and we need to get our Bible context right. And so there are two little areas we're gonna, just going to push into very briefly before we dive into our passage today. So let's get our historical context and our whole Bible context. So historical context... <clears throat> 
excuse me. Um, 1 Corinthians 7 verse 1 makes far, far more sense, actually, if we see it as Paul quoting the Corinthians who've just written to him. Now, we've already said that he's embarking on a bit of a dialogue. We only get one side of the telephone call, and so we're trying to piece together what is going on from the other side. We can't hear that, but we can see this. Now, in our Bibles, lots of our Bibles, it has those little quotation marks. Now, for the matters you wrote about quotes, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, the, the, the quotes aren't actually in the original text of the, the Bible in the Greek, but that seems to make sense. Um, certainly, um, later on in chapter 7, if you look down, when you flick down to verse 25, uh, you'll see now about virgins, and uh, it seems to be a topic that um, they've written to him about, he's responding. Or chapter 8, verse 1, now about food sacrificed to idols. Uh, they've uh, written to him he's responding or chapter 12 verse 1 now about spiritual gifts they've written to him he's responding each case Paul is picking up a quotation from the letter and giving his apostolic spirit inspired biblical response to that concern and uh, often the concerns are a false understanding of reality and spirituality and so in chapter 7 verse 1 this uh, Corinthian false pseudo-spirituality, if you like, is uh, they're saying it's good not to have sex with a woman. It's good to not um, to have a, a kind of sexual relations with a woman, um, or a man, as the case may be. All sex, in other words, according to the Corinthians, was bad sex. You couldn't have good sex. It was all bad. Sex is a fleshly thing. It's a bodily thing. It's a, therefore a sinful thing. And all physical matters are sinful and tainted and carnal. And uh, we need to live our lives for eternity. When our bodies go into the ground, our spirit is released and floats up to be with God in heaven. And that is ultimately true. And bodily stuff and sex and that kind of stuff, that's all bad, dirty. We need to be um, celibate and ascetic and live for for spiritual matters. And maybe uh, the Corinthian church were... Maybe they were even kind of invoking Paul as a single man, uh, as evidence on their side. Oh, look, Paul, you're single, so we should all kind of shun sexuality and live in a single kind of way. Well, what Paul is doing here is he's showing where their logic is dangerously heading. And uh, if all sex is bad sex, then the logic goes in married people should stop having sex. Maybe they should even get divorced. Uh, to enter a higher spiritual plane. And uh, certainly you wouldn't want to look to get married. That's like choosing to lock yourself into a spiritual second division. Why on earth would you want to do that? You want to be uh, spiritually pure and higher and therefore stay single. Now, um, it's important to get that historical context right as we study what Paul is saying here because uh, that is in the background as he writes. But also there's a whole Bible context we need to be clear on as well. And uh, we just need to remember this because we are going to get into some pretty kind of, not too explicit, but it's going to be quite intimate details about um, sexuality and marriage. And it may be tempting for you to say, look, I'm not married here today. Maybe I, I'm too young to be married. Maybe I have been married. I'm now you know, divorced or I'm a, a widow or a widower. Maybe you know, I'd love to be married, but I'm not. But like, how on earth is any of this stuff relevant for me? Well, I hope you will see there are loads of applications 
from today to you. I'm convinced of it, um, not least because we're part of a family. I've said this before when we've done these kind of studies. And as a family, you know, Christmas uh, lunch, maybe you're sitting around the Christmas table with family or with friends. And sometimes the conversation doesn't you know, go into an area that you have a particular interest in. But for some people around the table, they're passionate about it. And because you're in that family, you allow that conversation to go and you kind of listen in and you kind of get informed a bit about what it's like to be really into that particular thing. And uh, so for even though you know, some of you, this is less quote unquote relevant, I hope it's relevant for us all and really needed for us all. Because let's face it, the culture is speaking to us all whether we like it or not. <clears throat> And the other whole Bible point here is to say that issues of sexuality and marriage, that kind of thing, are really only occupations for life this side of Jesus' return. Um, and uh, the fact is that uh, whether or not you get married in this life, you know, Jesus said there's no marriage in heaven, the big relationship that we're all to, to, to focus on and lift our eyes to, capital R relationship, is the relationship that. We have with Jesus Christ if we have a relationship with him. And it's as if each one of us is engaged to him. He's our beautiful saviour, we've sung. And that is to be our priority. So uh, let me uh, quote Andy Robinson, who uh, uh, spoke last year, um, part of the Living Out team. He says that Christian's future is to have a leading role in the greatest royal wedding the world has ever known. That is our future. Whatever your kind of marital status. And uh, the fact is, we're betrothed to Jesus. He knows us. He loves us better than we know ourselves. And one day when he returns, and we see him face to face, there'll be nothing between us. No masks, no cover-up. What the Bible calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. We'll know him as, as uh, we are fully known. There'll be no more shame, no more secrets, no more loneliness no more unfulfilled hopes no more broken dreams he will be our all in all our beautiful savior will worship will praise him and the bible wants to assure us that that is not a second best absolutely not that is the ultimate that is the climax that is the great experience to which the temporary though precious and lifelong experiences of intimacy in marriage are pointing and are a picture of So in all our discussion uh, this morning um, about uh, marriage and sex, can I urge us to keep our first love? Jesus, you're my first love is one of the songs that that you may know. And to set our affection and our love on him on that final and joyous day. This is what John Piper, the uh, American pastor, says. There will be no marriage in the new creation, quoting Jesus. But what marriage meant will be there. And the pleasures of marriage tend to the millionth power will be there so that's the historical context and that's the bible context and don't forget of course uh, the two greatest heroes of the new testament jesus christ himself as well as the apostle paul were both single lived full flourishing complete whole lives so that's our kind of just by way of background but now we're going to dive into our our study and uh, our first point and by by the way this is by far the longest point we'll apply it at the end and then we'll find some other points as well but that's kind of a bit of a, a shape of where we're going here's our first point and uh, there's no mincing paul's words god's word for the married is keep on making love keep on making love verses two to six 
Uh, you remember that some within the Corinthian church had bought the idea that all sex is bad sex. And therefore spiritual people, or people who want to be spiritual, should stop having sex. And if you're married and you want to be spiritual, then sex has got to go too. To which Paul says, no, absolutely not. Not all sex is bad sex. Now, not all sex is good sex as well, and that myth was dispelled, I hope, uh, before Christmas. And you can listen to uh, the sermons we were looking at uh, before, before Christmas in November. But if you're married, sex, by definition, is good sex, or at least it should be good sex. Now, that's not to say uh, good in the sense of always the most exhilarating, or Hollywood-like, sadly, or even um, the most wholesome, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but in the sense of, you know, it should be good, it, it, it's right, it's proper, it's a relationship building, it's God honouring when it is in line with God's wonderful blueprint. That's why uh, we use the euphemism making love, it builds a relationship. Now Paul gives a window into uh, uh, God's blueprint for uh, good sex in these uh, first six verses. So what counts as good sex? Let's have a, a look very briefly. Four, four quick observations. First observation, good sex should be celebrated, not shunned. <clears throat> if sex is for marriage, then marriage is for sex. So have a look down in verse two, second half. Each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now actually that could be translated, or better translated, each man should keep on having sexual relations with his own wife and each woman her own husband. The, the command, very simply, is to keep on making love in God's word. Yes, that is in the Bible. You've come to church and you've heard the Bible say keep on making love if you're married uh, today. Now I imagine uh, many of us uh, think that God's a bit embarrassed talking about sex, uh, like we are perhaps. But not a bit of it. God is not embarrassed talking about uh, sex or making love. He invented sex. In, he made males and females the way we are. He designed all the biology. He wants them to celebrate it. Hollywood would say, of course, sex is good until you get married. Whereas God would say, sex becomes good when you get married. Now, many still would argue, well, well, is God really that pro-sex? Is he really? You know, we think God has got this kind of Victorian hangover about sex. If you really must, then do it, I suppose. But implication, really mature people don't do it. They gave it up long ago. Well, actually, the passage is the other way around. The Lord is saying, if you really mustn't, don't do it. But then do it again as soon as you can. That seems to be what Paul is saying, which leads us to our second observation from God's blueprint. Good sex serves godliness, not stars it. And that's in verses 2 and 5. And this all sex is bad sex and therefore to be avoided um, kind of maxim, which is in the cultural air floating around Corinth, might well have led people into sexual sin. Um, it's not impossible that there were some who were really kind of super spiritual uh, women or maybe some men who had so imbibed that cultural air, all sex is bad sex, that it was causing frustration to sexy frustrated husbands or wives. And, and they say, look, we, we mustn't have sex, we want to be spiritually pure, so we're not going to have sex. And so those frustrated partners were maybe even heading out to see the prostitutes, which is what gets covered in the end of chapter 6. Now, of course, that's totally reprehensible morally, um, 
But in this point, here verse, uh, in verses 2 and 5, Paul says, don't give Satan a foothold. Don't let Satan work his way in by your misuse of good sex. Now, let me be honest, that does sound pretty unromantic, doesn't it? Maybe almost a little bit negative. But Paul is honest enough to say that one function of sex within marriage is to ward off sexual temptation. So have a look down at the passage, verse 2, we'll see. Since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations or should keep on having sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. He uses the same logic in verse 5. When he talks about the danger of extended sexual abstinence in marriage. So look down in verse 5. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time. So that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. In other words, good sex in marriage serves godliness. It doesn't starve godliness. And see how countercultural God's word is to the uh, much more kind of super spiritual Corinthians or the monastic uh, medievals or even the priggish Victorians. It's not the case that really spiritual people shouldn't have sex. Now, according to Paul, the spirit inspired Paul, really spiritual people should have sex if they're married. Good married sex. God's word is so helpful here. I think it's, it's right that we let him speak to us. Now, of course, the Bible gives us many, many more reasons for getting married and for uh, making love with someone than just this reason. So if you were to read uh, Genesis chapters 1 and 2, uh, we read there that sex can bring children into the world. I think it's so beautiful that God has designed that the, 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 uh, the, the, the production of children is brought into the world in, within the context of a loving, committed relationship. That is God's good design. Uh, we might think about the quite erotic Song of Songs and uh, Proverbs chapter 5, how sex brings passion and joy to a, uh, a husband and a wife. We might think of uh, passages like Ephesians chapter 5 and how sexual intimacy is a picture of Christ's intensive, passionate love for us, his church. And that applies to, to us whether we're single or married today. But we, we shouldn't over-egg the romance factor and the passion. Of course, romance and passion are, are wonderful things, but 1 Corinthians 7 gives us some very, very practical reason and, and wisdom here. The fact is, uh, temptation to sin sexually doesn't just disappear overnight the moment you get married. And the fight against pornography, uh, the fight against uh, fantasizing over inappropriate relationships with someone you're not married to or, or adultery, they don't just kind of, kind of disappear the moment a ring gets put on a finger. Yeah, many people have found Paul's words about the God-given sexual release within marriage to be true. I suppose we only need to kind of zoom out from this passage and, and think of some of the tragic scandals of abuse that have taken place in, in different church uh, denominations. Uh, perhaps the celibate Catholic Church, one example, highlights the urgent uh, wisdom of Paul's instruction here. Good sex serves godliness. It doesn't starve it. Much more could be said, so let's press on. Third observation. Good sex is about giving, not getting. So verse 3, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone but also to her husband. In the same way the husband's body does not belong to him alone but also to his wife. Within the covenant of marriage when two become one flesh someone else's body 
becomes their spouse. But what's so interesting here in what Paul is saying is Paul doesn't say, therefore, stake your claim, take your rights. Rather, he says, husband, give your wife what belongs to her. He says, wife, give your husband what belongs to him. The emphasis is not on you owe me such and such, but on I owe you. Outdoing one another in how much you give, not how much you take. So completely other person centred. And so the best sex is when her joy is his and his joy is hers. Now, tragically, this has been absolutely uh, taken advantage of by, uh, by people, sadly many husbands, historically, maybe even in church contexts where abuse and manipulation and control have been. All about give me, give me, give me what I want, rather than how can I give to you what you need and what you want. Which means for husbands or would-be husbands out there, your goal is to please your wife. Which means, I guess, realising that men and women are different and that her needs and wants are different from yours, perhaps. It it might mean lots more communication than you think you need. Patiently and lovingly building up to sex rather than flicking an internal switch whenever you happen to get the urge. That's what it might mean for you. And wives or would-be wives, your goal is to please your husband. Which uh, means... Realising that again that men and women are different and that he may well need more sex than you. That's often the case. Uh, Martin Luther apparently said that he found twice a week to be ample ample protection from a temptation. Uh, We don't know whether Katie Luther, his wife, was uh, jumping for every time. But listen, wives, if you don't know kind of where you're at, you need to resolve now. However you work this out in your marriage, to resolve sacrificially and generously to be committed to giving. Except, of course, in in certain circumstances, ill health perhaps, or disability, times of childbearing, or or the time of the month, etc. I guess the point is, it's not about a a specific God-inspired, prescribed frequency, but rather that couples ought to prayerfully and lovingly establish mutually agreed regularity, shall we say, which will almost certainly vary over the course of a lifetime in different seasons of life. And uh, that will certainly involve talking and, uh, and praying together about these matters. For good sex is about giving, not getting. And our last observation here is that good sex treats husbands and wives as equals. And this is massively important. I, I think I've been struck by this more than anything else as I've been preparing it. Most of you think often people treat Paul as if he's basically a bit of a misogynist. He's a, a kind of woman hater all after kind of pushing other people down and, and, and so forth. Actually, God's word here, again, is incredibly radical. Have a look at this, verse 3. The husband should fulfil his marital duty to his wife. The husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife, verse 4. Now, of course, elsewhere, the, the New Testament does uh, spell out um, a, a kind of a, the diversity of roles that God has planned within a, a marriage relationship, and we need to remember that. But here, Paul is at absolute pains to spell out total mutuality, total equality when it comes to sex. I find this very, very convicting. We might actually extend it to many other areas within married life too. The fact is, friends, no one in the first century would say what Paul is saying now. And no one in the 19th century 
that kind of priggish Victorian era was saying this. The men in those eras held all the cards. Women had no rights whatsoever. They were simply there to satisfy their husbands, lie back and think of England kind of uh, mentality. But, but as in so many areas, if we would read the Bible in context and listen to it with humility, we would see it's far more radical and subversive than we first thought. There's to be no dishonouring one another by taking advantage emotionally or physically, no manipulation. Absolutely not. And therefore there is absolutely zero space for the, for the um, exploitation of abuse. And I just wanted to underline that. Next week we'll think a bit more about when uh, marriages uh, uh, struggle. Um, but if you are aware, either in your own marital relationship or in, in, in friendships, either in the present day or in the past, please, please uh, flag that up and speak to someone. I would hate for you to suffer alone in silence. For good sex, treat husbands and wives as equals. Do to others as you would have them do to you. All of which is to say God's word to the married is keep on making love. I'm just going to park there for a moment, trying to apply that, then we'll press on, finish off our passage. But I guess if you're married here today, um, well, the applications are fairly obvious. Um, uh, many people do find it hard to know how to, to, to talk about this topic, but why not just kind of have a conversation later today? You know, what did you make of what Dave was saying? Um, that book, Closer by uh, the Reynolds, is, is a very, very good book. Sometimes reading a book together and discussing that can be a fantastic start to help, to help you kind of move on in this area. But I also recognise there are lots of people both here at Highfield, watching at Dawn Street, maybe watching at home, who are unmarried and in various uh, kind of ages and stages in life. Uh, maybe many younger folk who uh, are not yet married would love to be married one day. Um, and perhaps uh, for some of you, you hearing uh, the fact that the Bible commands people to have sex staggering you know, like, like that is bizarre like what on earth surely that that's a that's a wasted bit of ink from paul like why on earth do you have to tell people to have sex if they're married surely they would want to have sex right well let me put it this way the fact that paul does speak into this area and gives a bit of a blueprint for what married sex is to be like maybe that's a bit of an indication i'm sure lots of you are aware of this but some might not be maybe it's an indication there's more to sex than some of us first thought. Perhaps some of us have a bit of a dreamy, Mills and Boone-esque kind of view of sex and a, a kind of a, a fantasy view that one day, please Lord, if I can get married, I'll have all my deepest emotional, uh, sexual, relational, longings-fulfilled impulses. They'll all be sold with the drop of a hat and it'll be peace and happiness forevermore. <laughs> well, I'm sure many of you know that's not the case and simply... Talk to a married couple or a married friend and they will tell you that is simply not the case. The intimate and sexual side of a marriage takes great patience and great effort and great forgiveness and great humility and great grace and lots of time and energy, lots of generosity, lots of sacrifice. Now that may be... You know, totally obvious to lots but some of you it may come as a bit of a surprise that those character traits don't suddenly arrive on your wedding night so why don't you resolve now i don't know your situation for many of you but say you're young and you say you think i'd love to be married one day why don't you make a point right now don't worry about what god does or doesn't do for you in the future but right now make a point of resolving that 
Say God happens to lead you into marriage one day. Work right now as, a, as an unmarried person on your patience, on your forgiveness. Work right now on your application of grace to you and to other people. On your tenderness, on your purity, on your restraint, on your listening, on your speaking up, on your being sacrificial. Work right now on that. As uh, the American pastor Douglas Wilson puts it, I think I've quoted him before, become the kind of person that the kind of person you'd like to marry would like to marry. Do you make sense of that? Let me say it again. Become the kind of person that the kind of person you would like to marry would like to marry. Don't you worry about what God is doing and who's coming across your path. You work on yourself and leave the rest to God. Regardless of your future, whether it's God's plan for you to marry or not, it may well be, it may well not be. Those qualities, that person you become, will never be wasted in the service of God. But good sex, if it is important, as I think we've seen it is, that means that prayer is really important. Prayer is really important, and that's in verses 5 and 6. It's the only exception that Paul gives to regular marital sex. So look down in verse 5. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. It's important to note that Paul is not commanding abstinence. He's just giving this to us as a concession. Um, But I think given everything that we've seen so far uh, this morning, I think that is massive. Paul is saying, in other words, and this, at this point, it applies to whatever context uh, we're in, marital, uh, married or single, give up something right and good. Sometimes it's good to give up something good for something important, for something really important. So again, sometimes it's good to give up something good for something that's really important. Uh, Paul has been talking about sex, obviously, for, a, for, for an agreed window. We're not going to make love um, so that we can pray, and then we'll come back together afterwards. But Paul could so easily have expanded this into other areas of life. So I just wonder, a quick application point, you know, what might you, whatever your marital situation, what might you be prepared to give up for a season to focus on something important like prayer? And would you be willing to give up your sleep to pray to rouse yourself on a Saturday morning once a month say to join the missions prayer breakfast or rouse yourself each morning half an hour an hour earlier than you need to to read the Bible and to pray that's a sacrifice giving up something good sleep is good but prayer is important or maybe you give up an evening to pray maybe you're not in the habit of coming to our, our church prayer and praise meetings you can do it on Zoom you can come back here at 6.30, I know Sunday evenings are busy, we're stressing over school nights, getting ready, etc., etc., but coming together to pray, what a priority. Maybe you could uh, um, get into the habit of giving up some food to pray occasionally. We've done that as a church um, over the last couple of years. We've been thinking about God's provision for our needs, or we've been asking the Lord to guide us as a leadership team, or as we think about embarking on a... You know, world in the middle of a pandemic we've encouraged the church to join us in days of prayer and fasting and that's a biblical um, quality and maybe you might be prepared to do that sometime to pray particularly for our church or the muslim world perhaps 
Maybe you might be prepared to give up a favourite television programme for a month. I'm not going to watch Match of the Day or Strictly or whatever it may be for you. Or I'm not going to go on Instagram this next month. I'm just going to stop it. And whenever I'm tempted to go on there, I'm going to pray. I'm going to spend that time praying instead. I'm going to give up reading the paper or doing, you know, Sudoku. I'm going to, no, I'm going to pray. I'm going to give my time to the Lord. What are you prepared to give up to give focused time to prayer? If, if sex is important, then prayer is really important. So that's the first lesson. God's word for married, keep on making love. There are two more very, very brief uh, lessons which we're going to see as we wrap up, which are really kind of trailers for the next few weeks. So um, that's the instruction for the marriage. But then there's God's word for us all, which is your marital status is a gift from God. So use it for him. Your marital status is a gift from God. Use it for him. Have a look down in verse seven. Paul says, I wish that all of you were as I am. That could mean uh, I wish you were all single as I am. But that kind of cuts across the grain of what he's been saying for the last five or six verses. Maybe it's, I wish all of you were contentedly single. Emphasis on contentedly. Free from a desire or need for sexual fulfillment. We don't quite know what's going on in him saying that. Subjectively. Objectively, the fact is, no one marital status is better than another. Each man has his own gift from God. Or sorry, each one has his own gift from God. End of uh, verse uh, 7. One has this gift, another has that. The word for gift here, charisma, is where we get the word charismatic from. So whether you're single, or you're married, or you're engaged, or you're going out, whatever your marital or relational status is today, it is a gift from God for you right now. Now I'm not denying at that point that some people might be uniquely gifted and called to be single for the whole of their lives. That's what Paul seems to suggest in, um, elsewhere. And Jesus talks about people who are single for the kingdom in Matthew chapter 19. Um, that's not to say that, but, but, but equally it's not to say that some people are, are gifted or some are only gifted in their marital status. No, the fact is we are all, when we're born, we're born single and we're gifted with singleness at that time. And then some of us, when we get married, we have to lay down that gift of singleness and we take up the gift of marriage. It is a gift. If you want more shades of grey, if you're going out with someone else, you have the gift of going out. If you're engaged, you have the gift of engagement. It's just like gifts at birthdays. It's not the case that the gift you have been given now is the only gift you'll have throughout your life, the only marital status you will ever have. But your current marital status or relational status is God's gift for you right now. That's the point. So use it for him. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee we sing. It can be very tempting to think that the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. If only I could be married, my life would be so much easier. Or if only I could be single, my life would be so much easier easier i've heard people say both to me over the years now we're going to think a lot more about this in the next few weeks but a quick trailer quick challenge and encouragement to those who are single here today don't put your life on hold until you get married your singleness right now is a gift from god it's a gift from god the time you have to serve him the energy you have to serve him the opportunity you have to do um maybe summer ministry overseas camps you know you name it the money you may have at your disposal to serve God right now 
You've just got one life. Don't simply live for a possible then that may come. It may not come. Because to be honest, you don't know when that then will come. Live for the Lord now. Use your gift he's given you now for him. Likewise, a word for the marrieds here. Don't denigrate singleness. Don't assume that um, our single friends are the impoverished ones within the church community. I've got a friend of mine who's so tired of being asked by well-meaning friends, still single, uh, that uh, he replies, still married? Kind of implication like, it's not as if suddenly, you know, life is easy if you're married and really, really hard if you're single. Marriage is really hard work. Singleness is really hard work. And whatever place you find yourself in, whatever marital status you have right now, it's a gift from God. Use it for him. Don't wish it away. And thirdly and very briefly, because our time is done, if you are unmarried, God's word to you is it may be wise to pursue marriage. It may be wise to pursue marriage. This is verses 8 and 9. If marriage have been encouraged to accept their gift and not try to become unmarried, well, shouldn't therefore singles just accept their gift and not try to become unsingle? Well, it's not quite that, like that, and it's not quite symmetric. So have a look down in verse 8. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it's good for them to remain unmarried as I am. But if they cannot control themselves or if they're not controlling themselves literally they should marry for it's better to marry than to burn with passion now by unmarried Paul may be referring to uh, widowers because uh, later on in the passage uh, verse 25 he's talking specifically about those who've never married uh, virgins but I think the point still stands Uh, despite the fact that it's good for some people to remain unmarried absolutely If they're not exercising self-control, then it's better for them to marry than to burn with passion. Now, like uh, the verse a little bit earlier on in the uh, the passage, that does seem a little bit negative, doesn't it? Marriage is a refuge for you to run to if you can't stop sinning. I'd like to go out with you because I can't stop sinning without it. I mean, come on, you can do better than that. Um, But of the many reasons why you might want to pursue a relationship and you might pray please Lord I want to offer my life to you but is it right that you might have me pursue a relationship of the many reasons one of them um, might be to deal with the temptation to, to, to burn with passion of course there's many more reasons otherwise if, if, if the only reason for, for marriage was to flee sexual immorality most people would get married at puberty Certainly most teenage boys would do, but that's not the plan. You you need to ask yourself questions like, are we both ready? Are we both emotionally ready? Financially ready for marriage? Are both of us Christians? Later on in in our studies, we're going to think about what happens when you're married to someone who isn't a Christian. But but in terms of pursuing a relationship, you want to find someone who similarly loves Jesus. Could this person I'm thinking about uh, going out with or pursuing a relationship with, could they be a father or a mother to any children that we have would they be good at that and loads more questions besides Uh, certainly they're questions that you don't want to be dealing with on your own i would urge you to talk to um, friends maybe life group leaders 20 student leaders perhaps uh, uh, one of the pastors do have work with uh, uh, myself or else we'd love to help you um, as we do that but Paul's wise point remains, if you find it hard to stay pure sexually, then it may be wise to pursue marriage to the right person at the right time. But as we close, I just want to urge us to lift our eyes one more time to the Lord Jesus Christ, that wedding supper of the Lamb. Because the Lord Jesus, if you know him for yourself, you said, sorry, thank you, 
please, for what I've done in the past, forgive me in my present and my future. He loves you. He looks you in the eye. And he says, I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I died for you. I rose for you. And I'm your perfect bridegroom. I'm the beautiful saviour. The key to a long and happy marriage. Look to me, he says. If you're single, you're tempted to think and feel a little bit left on the shelf. Well, God doesn't have a shelf. He comes to us. He draws near to us. He's Emmanuel. He comes by his spirit to be with us, to help us fight sin, help us be faithful in marriage, and he'll never, ever leave us, whatever we are, whatever we do. So look to him. Let's have a moment of quietness and then I'll pray. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the privilege of knowing you. We thank you for the call to follow you. And we do pray that you would be Lord of our lives. Please take our lives, whether we're single or married, happily single, happily married, or sadly single, sadly married. Please use our lives for your glory and your kingdom. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.